how do you assure me that this data will be kept private and it won't be you know, sold to Google or somebody else down the road? I mean, how do I know that no one's going to find out about my genetic information? So, so we never give out individual level data without your specific authorization. So, for instance, if we do a project with a group, we will never give out the individual level data, but what we do is we look for aggregate information and then we, we work with them to, to find, let's say, a genetic response for pain, but it's the aggregate data that we're working with. So it's not individual level data that is ever being sold unless we specifically contact you for that. But there's no way that, I mean, what happens if, you know, God forbid 23andMe goes under? What happens to the data? You have the ability to download the data and delete your account. Okay. And then ultimately, who owns it? Do I, would I own my own data or do you own my data? So you own your individual level data and 23andMe okay. owns the aggregate data. Okay. And one of the things that was really important to us in the very beginning is that we always felt that in the, because it's your data, and one of my pet peeves from the research world was this sense, like, all of you go into hospitals and you have, you know, you do procedures. So, for instance, like, I, uh, an, unfortunate to me, I become an expert in consent forms. And so I went in when I had my baby and, um, and I destroyed the consent form. And I was like, absolutely not will I consent for all these things. And I have no, I mean, most people don't realize, like you walk into the hospital and you give away all rights. And I was giving birth, you give away video rights. I was like, absolutely not will you be selling my, my video of my birth. So, so um, there's all kinds of things that people are concerned. So I'm hypersensitive to this. And I also think it's a tragedy that you go into most, most research, like most people who've ever participated in a clinical trial, you don't ever know what happens to that. And I think in this new modern day with sort of social media, things like the whole story of Gila, Henrietta Lacks, and it's a book that came out and it talks all about you know, her cells, she had ovarian cancer, her cells are now widely used throughout the research world, her family never really knew. Like in this modern social media day, like she should be the hero. She should have the most friends on Facebook. Like she should be that equivalent. Like if your genome's really interesting, we should make sure that you know about it. And then wouldn't it be great to know, like, wow, you're so interesting to study, and you powered all these papers, and drugs came out of you, and research discussed. Like, I think that there's a real positive that can come out of saying, like, I, people want to help society and humanity and health, and if we can understand because there's something interesting in your genome, I think most people are very excited about that. That said, if you don't want to participate in research, you just click the box that says, I don't want to participate. Okay. And you decide. You don't take the questions. I can't study you. Like, if I ask you if you're left-handed or right-handed and you don't tell me, I can't include you in the analysis. Um, the writer of the story, she chose to use a pseudonym for reasons that we'll get to a little bit later. Um, she took the test for herself and for her adopted five-year-old daughter. And um, she took her own results to her general practitioner just for a regular checkup. And she thought that he might like to have them on file in case they would be useful in her treatment going forward. And he kind of just scoffed at him. And she, she writes, she, you know, he, he looked at them like Carson from Downton Abbey looked at that new telephone that arrives downstairs. <laughs> and uh, you know, he actually said, "This is just another piece of uh, piece of tech that these tech people are throwing on us, and it doesn't mean anything. And I'm not even going to look at it and take it back with you. And I don't want it. And I know that you have made it a real mission to talk to and educate the physician community to get them to understand and help out with this. And how is that going? What are the obstacles? And why don't we teach doctors about genetics in a way that they feel empowered to be involved? Um, so it's a great question. Um, physician education is incredibly hard. 
and, and I would actually like to say, like, we have just started to scratch the surface of that, and we've just recently hired a medical director. We're starting to spend more time on the physician world, and in large part because I feel like you can't, I'll be unsuccessful, like in the case of, this, of, of the story, you walk into your physician's office, and if there's something really medically meaningful, and your physician just scoffs at it, we've failed. So we need to get physicians up to speed. Um, but traditionally, when you're educating physicians, that's hundreds of millions of dollars of physician marketing budget, and we don't have that. Um, so we've tried to do, in part, um, you know, one of the campaigns with having a million individuals in 23andMe was sort of to create, um, you know, to become disruptive. If there's a million people walking around town and showing up at their physician's offices, most physicians now have heard of us. And if it happens enough, the physicians actually start to accept it or then start reading about it. And I think then when they start to look at our scientific advisors and the papers that we've published and the work that we're doing, and for instance, this Udacity course, then they start to read and they start to understand it more. And I think that um, I feel bad for physicians. I think physicians are inundated with new information all the time. And I mean, you just look at all the information that's out there and it's a challenge and they have 10 minutes to assess you. And um, the reality is genetics is not part of the reimburse system. And we had one physician who stood up at a conference and he said, the biggest problem with 23andMe is that you generate non-billable questions. And I think that that's actually the heart of part of this problem is that you walk in and you say, I'm high risk for a blood clot, what do I do? Like, Come back to me when you have a blood clot. But for most of us in this room, you would just rather prevent the blood clot. But there's no prevention code for saying like, hey, we're gonna prevent blood clot and have this discussion. It's just there's treatment codes for when you actually have it. And I think that's the heart of the problem that I'd like to try to solve. And I think you can start to cause some of that disruption by having a million people walking around town saying, I have my genome, I'd like to actually prevent the disease rather than just treat it. That leads me to another uh, question that I had, which is, right now we do have this diagnostic model of healthcare where you have a diagnosis and they give you this little code and you take your code and the insurance company knows like, oh, this is 456, I know what to do with this. And they process it and they spit out a reimbursement fee and they say, okay, and you're done. It's, you know, it's, it's numbers-based and it's, it's diagnostic. And if it were to move to preventative, what do the healthcare companies do? And are they, are you talking to them at all? Are they resistant to this? Is it, I mean, I assume it's kind of an obstacle. Right to just and to think about healthcare moving toward a preventative. Structure. Yeah, it's so it's it's interesting. I'm kind of stuck in a very interesting world where I hear different um, um, conversations. I mean, one of the reason why I am a member of Kaiser is because Kaiser makes money off keeping me healthy. Like when I thought of doing a home birth, you know, Kaiser was like, "This is great, do a home birth," and Stanford was like, "That's horrible. This is a horrible idea." So I think that again, that's sort of reflective of of the system. Um, um, the day after, or the week after Obama was reelected, we actually had um, you know, an insurance company that we met with, and they came in, they're like, look, this you know, healthcare reform is here to stay. It looks like we really have to keep people healthy, and we really have no idea how. Like, do you know how? Wow. And, um, and I think that that, <laughs> and it went a little, remind me a little of that book, Thank You for Smoking, um, where like, there is a real shift that's coming. And when I meet with um, the people who actually are paying the bill, so a lot of employer groups, like you look at what Safeway has done. For Safeway, they really care about keeping their employees healthy because it's going to save them money. So they would be interested in what we're doing because prevention potentially saves them money. I think that there's a real challenge because like, if you're a Safeway employee, maybe you're only there for two years. So unless you're going to have children next year, do I test for the genetics? Like, there, there gets into be all these economics. Um, 
you know, one interesting too, like I remember meeting with someone in the government and I asked like, why don't we just like pay everyone $1,000 if they're on Medicare to lose weight? And they're like, well, it's actually cheaper for them to die of, of a heart attack than of cancer. And, and I think, again, like, it's just an important reminder for people. Like, that is how the healthcare system works. And I think that's why this whole trend about the consumerization of healthcare, it just reminds you, like, you have to take care of yourself. Because, like, the system around you is not necessarily aligned with your incentives. Like, I, again, what I say, and I say in the article, like, my goal is, like, I want to be healthy at 100 I don't want to be effectively treated or effectively managed. Like, I, I just, like, I don't want anything. Like, I want to be out of the hospital system and healthy. And so that doesn't make money for anybody. And I think if that's my goal, I just have to recognize the fact that it's not really aligned with the system. Um, it sort of takes that even a step further um, to long-term care insurance, yeah. which doesn't sound very interesting when I say it, long-term care insurance. But it's a very interesting point. Uh, right now, there is a law in place. It was passed in 2008 called GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And it covers health care and employers. So if you test positive for something degenerative, there's no employer or healthcare company that can discriminate you legally against, you know, based upon that information. But as of right now, the long-term care insurance industry um, which pays for your care if you get something like Alzheimer's for decades, potentially, they're not covered right now. And uh, we deal with this a little bit in the story. They, as an industry, as one, um, someone who covers this industry says it, he said they're losing their shirts. Because if everybody who finds out that they might need long-term care, buys long-term care insurance, and then needs it, the whole, the whole system will break down, because they'll be paying out every single policy that they have. Um, a, that's interesting. I don't know, my, my question is, are they even more, I mean, you said that some of the healthcare companies are interested in talking to you about what do we do, is, are they, has the long-term care industry shut down, or are they willing to kind of modernize and figure out what to do? I mean, we have not engaged with the long-term care industry at all. Um, it's, I'd say Gina, the, the, Gina, the federal protection, um, does offer a lot of protection for individuals from health insurance and from employers um, discriminating based on genetics. Um, I think that the long-term care insurance, that's, that's another area that has to continue to evolve. And I think that one of the realities is as the genome comes down in price, um, you're gonna start being sequenced for everything. I just, you know, you come into the physician's office and you have a cold, they'll just like take a nasal swab and just figure out what kind of virus you have and then treat you based, or not treat you based on that. So I think it's gonna become pervasive. It's just gonna be part of all aspects of your life. And there has to be protections in place in order for people to really adopt that technology. I mean, imagine if your long-term care insurance said like, I'm not gonna use you if you take antibiotics. Like, it, you just, then there, people would have that fear. I think that there's a legitimate issue, though, that you're right. Like, lots of people in this room, 20% of you are high risk for Alzheimer's. And um, there's a bunch of interesting studies done out of Harvard where what they found is that people who found out that they're genetically high risk for Alzheimer's, what they did, in fact, do was buy long-term care insurance. So to me, when people ask in that question, like, what do you do if you find out you're at risk? Well, like... In that case, people were actually taking, they're making a behavior change to be responsible for their future care. So somehow that has to be figured out. How is it? Because then the consumer has an educated advantage over the insurance industry. So I don't know what the right solution is. There has to be some kind of federal protection. When I've talked to people in the government about it, they're like, that's part of the argument for a single-payer system. Right. 
And then also you don't want those companies to go out of business because people, you'll need the care. People need the care. Right. right. It's, uh, it'll be very interesting to follow that one as it goes forward. Um, our writer used a pseudonym in the story because she ended up finding out something you know, potentially devastating about her daughter who's only five and she's a, a good parent and didn't want to share with the world anything about her daughter before her daughter's old enough to hear it herself. Um, and because we don't know about discrimination with long-term care going forward, uh, we just don't know enough yet. So she chose to use a pseudonym. So she found out this information and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a heavy hit. She's a five-year-old girl. You don't want to hear anything about her old age that's going to be scary. And she was able, she was reporting the story and she was coming to see you. And she right. met with you and you canceled a meeting and you spent some time with her one-on-one -on -one talking her through what this information meant a little more perspective and analysis, and um, she talked to another counselor at 23andMe, and I, you know, I can tell you, because I spoke to her right after that, that it did make her feel a lot better and empowered her to know what to do and what to do with her daughter, and she just felt okay about it. What does a mom in Kansas do mm -hmm. when she finds out that information about her five-year-old daughter? Who does she turn to? Is there something in place with the company? Do they, are they, do they seek help elsewhere? Mm -hmm. So um, I think one of the challenges is it's, it's, we are pioneers. Like it's, it's, an, it's a new world still. So what's been really important for 23andMe is having a community. And so what we find is that people tend to get their genetic results and then they ask questions into the community. And 23andMe has moderators, we have customers, we have support, um, and then the community actually tends to help answer a lot of these questions. So I have no doubt that there's other moms from the Midwest who are in the community who've probably already posed that question, what should I do? And I think part of the, part of the challenge is it's, it's not a definitive answer. Part of it is you know, a lot of people want to make lifestyle changes and there's not, we don't have great information yet, exactly what is the right thing to do. And I think that's where people are surfacing those suggestions. So do you do um, brain games? Do you exercise a lot? Do you do a lot of math? Those types of things. And I think that's where people are feeling empowered by having a community of other individuals who are thinking about how to solve that problem. And then also, most importantly, getting really involved. Like, research is evolving. And one of the things that's exciting to me about Alzheimer's is that it's going to be similar to cancer, I believe, where if you can detect it early, you'll have a good chance of potentially being able to treat it. But if you can't wait until you're symptomatic, then it might be too late. It may be like a stage four cancer. So in the case here, it might be that there's technologies in the future where maybe at age 30 or age 40, she actually gets a brain scan. And then she's able to detect it much earlier and then actually change her longevity or change the, change the course of the disease. So I think that's some of the advantage of actually knowing these things early. And I think it's, again, I think lifestyle, you know, health is going to be, it's that marathon. It's, it's a lifelong experience. It's no longer just about, oh, I found out this and I changed this behavior for the last 30 days. It's a cumulative experience. And so for her, she's lucky. Her daughter's five. She can potentially, she, has, she can impact the rest of her life. And so I think that she'll hopefully share her, I mean, she obviously did share her story. She can learn more things from the community. And I think research will continue to evolve. And I think that's part of where, like, it's 23andMe's job now to collect a lot of that data so that we can actually really start to understand, well, what is that impact in 10 years? Uh, as your company grows, what are your goals um, in the next, I don't know, five years or so? What are you hoping to do? Uh, so we set out the goal to have a million people for this year, and we'll probably hit that in, in early uh, 2014. Um, 
so, so after that, it's, it's really about growing numbers into much bigger and bigger numbers, and people frequently ask why. And, um, and I always think about, there's this story that came out, um, many of you probably heard about that, in Target, where um, there was a 17-year-old girl who was identified as being probably pregnant based on her shopping history. And, you know, we all probably use our shopping cards when we go to the store. And, um, and, you know, those stores know really good information about you based on your behaviors and your demographics and where you live and how you've been shopping. And the fact that they were able to predict that this girl, woman, was pregnant shows me sort of the power of having big data. And what would be great for all of us is if you could walk into the physician's office and the physician says, based on your behavior and based on your genome, you're five years away from being diabetic. And you need to make these types of changes if you really want to be able to avoid it. Or, you know, X number of things that you need to do, you have to change your diet or you're more likely to be sensitive in these areas. Like, we want to get that kind of data so that you can actually really make intelligent decisions about your health. I mean, health right now is kind of, I mean, we all, um, you know, we're all probably in roughly the same age group here. Um, maybe plus or minus 20 years. Um, but <laughs> it all, once you hit 40, you like to bundle everyone in with you. <laughs> um, um, but we all remember, like, are eggs good for you? Are they bad for you? Are Cheerios good? Are they bad? I mean, it's just like we don't have great data. And if I can walk into, you know, a major store and they can know tons of information about me, like, why can't I get that at the doctor? Like, it just seems like that's a much more important place for them to know something about me. And I think that, to be honest, like, the reason why we don't have all that data is because people make money off hoarding the data. And that's exactly what we're trying to break down. Like, don't, I don't want you know, just one academic institution to hoard my data or one academic or a pharma company to hoard my data. Like, free your data. Like, you own your data. That's, like, kind of the heart of what 23andMe is. Like, you own it. Like, you share it. And that's what's been sort of really disruptive here is, like, we let you share your data. And, like, that gets into all the privacy discussions and whatnot, but overwhelmingly, people want to share their information. I imagine people might have some questions. This might be a good time to open it up. Yeah, a quick People been leveraging your API, the application mm -hmm. programming interface, in creative ways that you would like to foster? Um, so we did. We launched the API, uh, I think, like a year and a half ago or so. Um, and, and we have, I don't have a, the latest update on it, but it is something that people have been, a number of academic institutions and companies have actually been playing around with it. Um, and the goal at some point is to be able to really have a whole store where we can say X number of individuals want to, you know, all kinds of different applications that can be powered by your genome. So I don't have any great updates on that, but we can follow up. And um, it's definitely more part of the future than, than, than the present. And um, maybe starting the conversation at med school level. Um, I was just talking to my interns, and she was saying how you know they have so many more, so much more paperwork and information that they don't even know what to do with yet. And she said people coming into the profession are really challenged. So maybe if you could start early. Yeah, I've definitely, um, I definitely have thought about that. Um, there's nothing more challenging than changing curriculum in a medical school of all places. Um, so again, kind of going more with this disruptive theme. Um, I, my thought was like, like everyone, like if you're in med school, you clearly love to pad your resume. 
And like that's how you got there. And um, and there's <laughs> I had to I had to deal with a lot of these med students. Um, so so one of the things that we could do is we could start personalized medicines clubs. And we could have personalized medicine clubs, and um, we have a whole curation team that generates, that curates literature about, let's say, things like warfarin. Warfarin, one of the most commonly used drugs, has genetics in the label, but that genetics is almost never used in the clinic. So I would love to have every med student, you know, have a club that, or have clubs at all the med schools, and then send out those papers, and then start that dialogue. Well, why don't we use genetics when we give this drug? And then have them write back, and actually have sort of an online dialogue but in a club format. And I think that will then inspire the professors to start thinking like, oh, they're all talking about personalized medicine. Genetics and personalized medicine's coming. But what I found is we work with a number of med schools. We have, um, I, I mean, uh, probably 50 plus programs where we've been working with them. Um, and, but, but actually getting into the curriculum in changing it is, is really hard. And so part of it is, again, is we've always tried to create that demand. And so having some of these clubs, and, and again, we work with all these professors, and, um, and also doing research with these groups that also has sort of gotten them interested in actually using 23andMe in, in education programs. But it's a great idea. No doubt that you're, uh, uh, you have a great offering, and kudos for that. But we all know that there's a big difference between having something that is of value add to commercializing it and mainly because of the externalities. You named two of them, mainly um, the perception in the public as well as the medical healthcare externality, right? And I think that that's something that entrepreneurs, many entrepreneurs are facing, which is they really believe in the value that they can create, but they're fearing of the externalities that, the exter externalities that will be there and that will be on the, in, the, in the way. Any words of wisdom or encouragement about how to tackle that from the entrepreneur, the innovator's perspective? Sorry, will you repeat it just a little bit again? I didn't. Yeah, the externalities that that prevent good solution that solutions that have merit yeah. from being adopted in the mass market. In healthcare, in general. No, generally speaking, yeah. not just in healthcare. How does how did you as an entrepreneur? Yeah. Uh, face that psychological barrier of thinking about the risk that someone that, that the market won't adopt that, not yeah. because it's not good, yeah. but because of the externalities. Yeah, if I if I get, if I if I understand what I think you're asking, um, I mean for me I was very like 23 Me is a very mission driven company, and I think that there's a lot of ways to make money and a lot of ways to have a business, um, but for me just making money wasn't interesting. Like it was really for me about change, and I think that I was raised in such a way that um, you pursue what you're passionate about, and then you, tr you try to do good in the world, and um, I thought there was nothing worse. I, I mean, I learned a lot from Wall Street, and again, I found it horrifying, really, how healthcare sometimes gets executed on individuals, and how people get monetized, and I really, like, I could make money in healthcare in all kinds of ways, and you see that, like, it's easy to monetize certain diseases. And um, like we're fighting a much harder battle here. And, um, and in part, I, again, maybe it goes like back to my childhood and whatnot, but like I was very much raised with that principle that you do, you do what's good. And even if it's a challenge, you keep fighting that fight. And, um, and again, really going off the moral beliefs. And it wasn't about like, I want to be successful, I want to drive change, and part it's also very personal, like, I want it for me. But it wasn't just about 
making money. And I think that's, I was really raised in an academic environment where it was not well regarded to just like go and try to make a lot of money. Can't see, oh sorry, yeah. Or the uh, the healthcare uh, system because uh, making this a billable uh, procedure, doctors would definitely get on board, and you, I don't think the doctors are going to be uh, a problem implementing this uh, great product you have. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest challenge is really get, getting the healthcare or the insurance to pay for it, mm -hmm. because you know what, you, you know your insurance is good. Mm -hmm. until you use them. Yeah, I think that, <laughs> I, trust me, I know. Um, I, I think that part of what we've done with making it $99 is we've tried to make healthcare affordable. And I'm a big believer, you know, I used to invest in healthcare around the world and you go into India and I could pay $50 and spend eight hours in the hospital and get every test imaginable. Um, they're saying, it always drives me crazy, like MRIs, like why don't they run them 24 hours a day? If it's expensive capital, like just run it 24 hours a day. I'm sure there's someone in this room who would pay much less to go at 3 a.m. than like the peak hours at you know 10 a.m. Um, so I think there's like a lot of bad business practices because healthcare doesn't function as a real business because you have this middleman, the insurance company. And I think one of the most exciting trends I've seen is that Walmart announcing that they're going to put physicians in all stores because that makes it one, Walmart's going to make it affordable, but two, if you think about um, healthcare becoming more part of your lifestyle, lifestyle is frequently dictated by Walmart. So you walk in, you're like, hey, I'm high risk for type 2 diabetes. You're seeing the doctor, and they're like, oh, aisle 7, running shoes and low sugar foods. And that's, that's like a true economic lift for them. Like, that's where, like, if you're going to have lifestyle changes, it's going to be from that kind of environment. And, I mean, your physicians, they're not going to make any money off telling you, like, they're going to, like, do an exercise video. But there has to be something kind of more, um, I mean, healthcare really has to become integrated. If, I, I do really feel like we're changing. And I see all kinds of, you know, steps. Like, there's another company, Theranos, where they're having, a, you know, a blood test, and it's, you know, going to be rapid and all, Wal I think, Walgreens, and really cheap, like $25. I mean, I think that there's, there's things that are starting to change, but reality is it's the consumer that's driving the change. Because so, people make so much money in healthcare. I mean, clearly, it's a massive part of the GDP. It's so much money, you have no idea. And so, but it's gonna be all of you walking like, with your feet, like making that choice and saying, like, this is what I want. And fundamentally, like, the great loophole in all of health care is that you actually own your own data and you can say what you want. So like you can actually direct a lot of your own care. And I think that's where, like for me, it's a lot about creating, a, you know, we're direct to consumer, not because it's easy, but because like that's how you create a revolution. It's a great note to end on. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>